Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, I'm going to have to preach long today. Good morning. Oh, uh, yeah, that's what I thought. In all seriousness, it is a good morning because we're in God's house. Uh, this morning, uh, I am specifically excited because we are going to start a new sermon series. Um, we're calling it A Living Faith in a Fallen World. And uh, systematically, uh, we're going to go through the book of James. So we're going to take our time and just walk through it scripture by scripture. Uh, James has been a book that has blessed my life personally. And we pray as we study it together. Um, our hope is uh, that you would not just gain new information about an author or book or certain uh, topics biblically, um, but our hope and prayer is that uh, as you are exposed to the truth of God's word, that you will be transformed by that truth. That's why we are preaching through the book of James. But before I jump into there, I have three uh, little uh, announcements I want to highlight. Uh, one is um, next uh, Saturday, we'd love to see the men of the church. Uh, it's a late uh, game day, um, so I'm sure you're going to tailgate and all that, but just come on to the house of the Lord and spend a little time with us. We're going to have a, just a very clear and short message, and it's an opportunity for us as men to be sharpened and challenged, so 9 a.m. Uh, next Saturday, we'd love to see you. Uh, also, there's going to be something called uh, Fields of Faith on October the 9th at Clark Central. Uh, really, this is an evangelistic opportunity that's taking place in the city, and we're letting you know it for two reasons. Number one, I want you to pray for it. It's an opportunity for us, um, or the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, to go into a local high school and present the gospel. And that's something that we need uh, to collectively pray about. It'll take place at 7 p.m., and it'll be on the football field. If you're available to join us, I would love to see you there. Uh, but then there, there are two really, really important dates uh, that I want you guys to be um, prepared for. I want to go ahead and announce it, and these dates will be in the weekly email. But on, on October 24th, that's a Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. Instead of having Bible study that night, uh, we're going to break up into teams and we're going to go out into the community. It's an opportunity for us to uh, reach our neighbors, uh, to share the love of Christ. Uh, this will not be uh, just handing out flyers. Uh, the goal of this is to meet people who do not have a relationship with God and not to get into arguments about our faith, but we want to clearly present the gospel. So Wednesday night, um, October 24th from 6 to 8, that'll take place. If you have kids, we'll still have childcare here at the church, so you can drop your kids off, and uh, we will hit the neighborhoods, and we'll break up uh, depending upon how many people come, and we will try uh, to share the gospel with as many people as possible. Amen? Amen? Also, the following Sunday on October 28th from 1 to 3, we'll do the same exact thing. Wednesday does not work for everybody. So uh, October 24th is a Wednesday, but October 28th is the following Sunday. So immediately after service, same thing, we'll have child care provided. Uh, we will go out uh, into the community and do some evangelism. Amen. I'm hoping to see as many people as possible join us. So let's turn our attention to James. I'm sure that uh, Kathy Roth is going to be so excited. Um, we're going to do James chapter 1. And we're only going to do verse 1 today. Amen. <laughs> James 1, 1 simply, simply declares, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the, in the dispersion, greetings. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for blessing us. 
with this opportunity to look at a man who was once a skeptic and then you made him a saint. God, I pray as we dig into this passage, this one verse, God, I pray that we would see ourselves in the text. God, that we would all acknowledge that at one point or another, that either we were a skeptic or we still are skeptics. God, for those of us who were skeptics, God, help us to be encouraged that you can do for others what you've done for us. And God, if there is a skeptic among us, God, I pray that we would so clearly and so passionately present the truth. God, we pray that today would be the day where they place their faith, their hope, and their trust in you. God, I'm praying it this way because, God, this is what brings you honor, and this is what brings you glory. We ask these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen. A very well-known author by the name of Max Licato tells a story of a time in his life when he almost lost his two-year-old daughter. She had an accident when she almost drowned. She almost drowned, and he reflects on the incident, and he says, although the tragedy was averted, the tragedy almost happened because he got to a place in his life where he became a little too familiar. He got to a place in his life where he began, began to be careless. Uh, he began to think th- take things for granted, almost to the point of allowing his two-year-old to be drowned in a pool. In his book, God Came Near, he reflects, I came to face the reality of one of Satan's sneakiest agents. He says the agent of familiarity. He says uh, when we become familiar, it is usually because Satan gives a commission from his black throne. And this commission is clear and it's fatal. He says here's how Satan operates. He says Satan wants us to live in such a way where we take nothing and we see nothing as being, um, that we never live our life in such a way where we are understanding that he is taking things from us. He says, Satan speaks like this. I want to take nothing from my victim, but I want to cause him or her to only take things for granted. Lakato says, when he became familiar, he understood that it was a trail that was slowly progressing over the years. But when he came to his senses, when God revealed it to him, he began, he began to see this idea of becoming familiar taking place in a lot of areas of his life. To quote him, he says, I came to recognize Satan's talents and to detect his presence. He says, Satan tries his best to keep quiet, but he has deadly aim. His goal is nothing less than that we should take what is precious and allow it to become what is common. He says, it is true that familiarity breeds contempt, and it brings a present and clear danger. 
He says lives are put in jeopardy because of it. Our families are broken because of it. Marriages are ruined because of it. A spirit of gratitude is absent because of it. We become lazy in worship. We become lazy in life. We become lazy in work. All because we have become too familiar. Says the antidote to becoming too familiar is living life in such a way where we don't take anything for granted. Where we prize people where we see the big and small things, where we worship God as our chief joy, where we live in such a way where we understand that the Lord is not just good, but the Lord is with us and that the Lord is for us. When you think about the issue of becoming familiar, it's easy for us, even in the church, to live in such a way where we don't truly appreciate things because things have become familiar. Things have become common. They've become less than precious. They've become just another thing to do. And if we're not careful, we will find ourselves in a really hard place if we allow the things of God to become too familiar. When you look at uh, the, the book of James, it really is authored by a man who initially in his life had become super familiar with Jesus. Now, on one level, as a pastor, we want you guys uh, to have a, a, a biblical uh, fluency. We want you guys to understand the scriptures. We want, we want you guys to know God's plan for your life. We want you guys to be able to clearly articulate the truth of God's word. But here's the truth. We do not want you to get to a place in your life where the things of God are just a, 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 as familiar as waking up in the morning or getting a bowl of a cereal or going to a UGA game or listening to the radio, we cannot allow our relationship with God to become common and familiar. When we look at the passage, there are three essential points that we find in the first verse that tell us how this man went from being a skeptic to being a saint. First, when you look at the, the, the first chapter, the first verse, we see James has a focus that is personal. Now, historically, we must understand that the James that is mentioned in, in James 1, verse 1, is the half-brother of Jesus. When we consider the entire New Testament, there are actually four men who are specifically named James. You have James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Uh, they were called uh, by Jesus as they were fishermen. He and his brother were nicknamed the sons of thunder because they were impulsive. Uh, secondly, you have uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. He is another disciple, uh, but very little, little is known about him. Then you have James, the father of Judas. Jesus actually had two disciples named Judas, Judas Iscariot, and then Judas, who had, um, who, who had a father named James. And then you have James, the brother of the Lord. But he does not identify himself in this way. I love how the passage opens because he simply says, I'm a servant of God. Then say that I have a, a great family connection. He says, I am a servant of the Lord. Some might ask the question, why doesn't James simply tell us that he is the brother of Jesus? I mean, if Jesus was my brother, <laughs> I would certainly drop his name as much as possible. I mean, when I'm trying to, to get a deal or get a hookup, I would probably say something like this. Y'all know who's my brother, right? 
You got a big test coming up. You got a, you know, you need a promotion. Oh, I can talk to my brother about that. He can handle that, right? <laughs> but, but in the text, James does not do that. Now, we, we can call him the half-brother of Jesus because we know that biologically they shared a mother, but they had different fathers. Now, Catholic theologians have tried to say that Mary only had one child, and that was Jesus. They try to say that because they have a theology of Mary being a co-redemptrix. They, they've placed her in a position that she does not deserve. We are thankful for Mary, but Mary is not a co-redeemer, okay? When you look at the text and you jump forward, you see James is spoken about in Matthew 13, uh, verse 55. It's on the screens. Before we want to consider what James has to say, we need to see what the Bible says about James. Matthew 13, 55 says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? When did this man get all these things? Matthew 13 clearly tells us that Jesus had brothers and sisters, and it specifically tells us that one of his brothers was a man named James. All right, let's go to John 7, 5. It tells us a little bit more about his brothers. John 7, 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. It said it again, not even the brothers of Jesus believed in Jesus. John 7, 5 clearly tells us that his brothers were not, uh, were not ones who supported him. They were not disciples. It counsels the others. Before we jump in uh, to what he did, we need to think about it this way. Um, it's, it's easy for me to kind of get on James for not believing in Jesus, but if I were to put myself in the family of Jesus, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been really hard to be the brother of Jesus? Like my sisters, I mean, they both have PhDs. They are like overachievers. They never like made less than like a 92. Like I, I just could not stand growing up with them. Like, like we're only 15 months apart. So like every year I would usually have their teachers and their teachers would always like call me the twins little brother. It just, just bothered me, right? When you think about that reality of being Jesus' brother, and you think about Jesus uh, being a 12-year-old and teaching in the temple, right? That's got to be hard on your brothers and your sisters, right? When you think about how Jesus had excellent moral character, that had to be hard to deal with each and every day. Like, it's hard to deal with a, a, a brother or a sister who's a sinner and who's pretty good, but, but could you imagine having to live growing up competing with the Lord? I mean, seriously. I mean, could you imagine when your parents were, were telling your birth story and they get to Jesus' story and it's like, yeah, when he was born, a star showed up. And like, you know, these, these men came from the east and they gave him gifts. And, but when you, when you were born, it was pretty good. Maybe it was a Wednesday. Like, like when you think about it, it really does remind us, like, to be one of the siblings of Jesus would have had to be really, really tough. To be one of the siblings of Jesus would, have, would mean that, that they were raised with him his entire life, and Jesus would have just been common, it would have been familiar, and it, it would have allowed their hearts to get to a place of pride and contempt. 
When you look at John 7, 5, it is clear that his brothers did not believe. But I want you to go with me to Acts 1, 14. Acts 1, 14. It says, And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to praying together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Interesting. It says they were in the upper room. They were praying to Jesus. They were devoting themselves to the teachings of Jesus. They were waiting on one of the promises of Jesus. When you consider Acts 1.14, the brothers are now believing. With John 7.5, with the brothers who did not believe, the natural question is, what happened? And the question that you should ask yourself is, what changed? What did they learn? What did they hear? Like, like what happened between John 7, 5 and Acts 1, 14? You should go with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 through 7. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, verse 6, 6 through 7 say, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. The passage tells us that Jesus appears to 500 people, which is a large group. And Jesus also appears to a smaller group of disciples. But specifically, the point I want to make is, Jesus appeared to his brother James. He appeared to his half-brother. So what happened between John 7... And Acts 1 is the reality that Jesus revealed himself to a man. Specifically, Jesus revealed himself to his brother. What happened to the, in the life of James is what is possible in the life of every person who's living. What's, what happened in the life of James is specifically what happens in the life of every single person believer. Whether you admit it or not, none of us were born saved. I know we like to think that. I know we like to assume that we haven't done anything too bad. We want to think that those other people need salvation. Those other people need forgiveness. Like, like I'm good. Like, I'm a good person. Like, I'm nice to people. We think that we're not in need of salvation. But the truth of the matter is, every one of us has had a time in our life where we have lived the reality of John 7, 5. A time in our life when we did not believe. A time in our life when we were skeptics. A time in our life when we just looked at Jesus as another common person. When I look back over my life, I can remember hearing a lot about Jesus. I can remember being in church. I can remember hearing some positive principles about the Lord, some life verses that I could put into play, like honoring my parents and being a good neighbor. Like, I remember those things, but I certainly did not have a relationship with God. So when I consider how God was able to move James from John 7, unbelief, to Acts 1 and belief, I believe we can rejoice that God is still able to save sinful people.
that God is still moving people from unbelief to belief, that God is still revealing himself to people. I love it because it encourages me that I should never, ever give up on people. I should never, ever give up on people. I should never get to a place in my life where I believe that a person is outside of God's reach. Because I know God can move them from John 7 and Acts 1. I know that God can reveal himself. I know that the Lord is able to do for others what we could not do for ourselves. The thing that turned James' life around was an encounter with the risen Christ. He just didn't see Jesus uh, on the cross, but he saw Jesus walking in resurrection power. Some might be wondering, well, Pastor, how does, how does Jesus reveal himself today? And I believe truly that God chooses to reveal himself through his word. If we want the people to see Jesus, then we need to take people to God's word. We want people to know Jesus, we got to share God's message. If we want people to move from death to life, we've got to give people the words of eternal life. So here's a practical principle. When you share about Jesus, one of, the, one of my favorite preachers says it this way, and it's not Tony Evans, it's actually H.B. Charles. He says, when you preach Jesus, don't leave him on the cross. When you preach Jesus... Remind people of the resurrection. Remind people of Christ's victory over sin, death, and the grave. When I look at James, his, his life is a reminder that he became a believer, but also uh, when you look at his life, his life shows us that he became a leader in the church as well. Uh, go with me to Acts chapter number 15. I know we're doing a lot of background, but we need to set the stage for the book. Acts 15, verses 13 through 18, simply saying, and after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and that the Gentiles who are called by name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. So just to give you context, James is uh, at the council and there is an argument over race. Uh, there is an argument over uh, should, should the Gentiles be allowed into the church. There's an argument over should black folks and white folks be together. There's an argument over should people from different tribes and tongues be able to worship together. And James addresses the issue that God's plan was always for people to be together. When James speaks to the council, I love it because he actually draws from the Old Testament. Uh, one preacher says it this way. When James spoke, he drew from his Sabbath school lessons. He drew from things he learned growing up as a small child, and he was able to share the truth of God's word, and he was able to share how God has a plan to reach the world. It's, it's amazing to me when you think about it. He learned things before he believed in Christ that he used after he believed in Christ. Uh, some people may say, well, why, is, why, why y'all got the kids in here today? Why y'all got the little folks in here today? We're hopefully investing something in them that one day they will use after they become a Christian. 
he, he learned something when he was in the synagogue, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord brought back to his remembrance something that he taught, something that he was taught before he learned to trust in Christ. All of us should have that mindset when it comes to exposing our children or our family members or our loved ones to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we do family devotionals. Like, that's why we bring our children to church, even when they don't want to be here. That's why we read the scriptures with them. That's why we post it in our homes. That's why we do it, because we are placing our faith and trust in Christ that one day Christ will not only save them, but Christ will bring back to their remembrance the things that we have taught them faithfully. We hope, here's the prayer for my children. I hope and pray that they place their faith and trust in Christ and one day when they fight, they're fighting temptation, they can draw on the truth that they've been taught at home. I hope and pray that when my kids have to make a tough decision, that, that, that they are, when they're faced with the issue of saying yes to God or no to, or no to God, they, they're able to draw from the truth that we have shared them, that the Holy Spirit would be able to use what we have invested in them. Now, I'm not picking on anybody. But I, I need to say this. Shame on us if our children or our coworkers or our family members get more stats about Georgia football than they get the scriptures. Shame on us. Shame on us if we give our children more Beyonce and Bruno Mars than we give the Apostle Paul and Peter. Shame on us if our kids can quote Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp better than they can quote Jesus. Shame on us. And as a church body, we've got to make a commitment that we're not going to just share the word, but we want to equip our people to do the work of the ministry. James went from denying the Lord in John 7 to praying to the Lord in Acts 1. I just feel led to say that, that, that when you think about the passage, like what an what a encouragement for us to pray for people who don't know Jesus. Like not to fuss at them, not to yell at them, but to, but to ask people specifically, Lord, move them from John 7 to Acts 1. Lord, reveal yourself to them. So many times we neglect to pray for people and we miss opportunities to see God work. So first, we see James has a personal focus, but secondly, we see James has a powerful focus. Verse 1 again says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, who was once an unbeliever, is now a believer, but now he is referring to Jesus as Lord. He begins by simply stating, Jesus is Lord. He didn't simply say, hey, y'all listen to me. Because I was raised with Jesus, I have something to say. He begins by letting, letting us all know that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. By stating it this way, he is reminding the audience that the most important relationship he had with Jesus was not his biological relationship. The most important relationship we had, that he had with Jesus was the spiritual one. He starts the letter 
And he could have took the time to mention some stories and some quips and some quotes. Uh, He could have gave some insider information about what Jesus was like. But he starts by letting us know that Christ is the Lord. One of the reasons why I wanted to preach on this passage is, or preach through the book of James, is because it reminds us of the Lordship of Christ. Uh, The book of James is 108 verses. But 54 of the verses are imperatives, and an imperative is a command. James is not about suggestions, but James is about clearly communicating what Christ expects from every single believer. These 54 imperatives are are a reminder that we are called to follow the commands of Christ. To appreciate the passage, you must understand that James doesn't approach Jesus as his half-brother, but James approaches Jesus as the Lord. I believe that that it's good for us, uh, for us to to be reminded that as we grow in our relationship with Christ, we should approach Jesus with a willingness to submit to his lordship. When I speak about the lordship of Christ, I'm speaking about his power and his authority, I'm speaking about his right to rule and reign. Some people are thinking, like, what kind of Lord is Jesus? He's the kind of Lord who not only deserves our obedience, but he's the kind of Lord who wins our admiration. He's the kind of Lord that we serve with our adoration and our our delight. Jesus is not a selfish dictator. He's not a mean Lord, but he's kind, he's gentle, he's slow to anger, he's steadfast in his love. Yes, James was the half-brother of Jesus, but he focused on the Lordship of Christ. I want to slow down here and say it this way. Yes, Jesus is a friend. He is. Yes, Jesus will stick closer than a brother. Yes, Jesus is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He has promised us that he will never leave us. He will never neglect us. He will never forsake us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from his love. I want you to know that about Jesus, but I also want you to hear me clearly. We cannot look at that aspect of Jesus while neglecting the lordship of Jesus. I know that's not popular for me to say because every one of us in here, we want to do our own thing. We want to make our own decisions. But the scriptures remind us that Christ is Lord. So James is going to dive into uh, what life as a Christian should be like. But he wants to dive in in light of the lordship of Christ. James will take the time to focus on how we are called to be salt and light. He takes the time to give, a, 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 to give us examples, but he also gives us an opportunity to, to see nothing else can be understood from God's perspective without under, understanding that Christ is Lord and he has the right to tell us what to do. When I was, a uh, couple weeks ago, I was sharing about my grandfather. He's 89 years old. Uh, he, is, he lives in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And uh, my, my papa is near and dear to my heart. Um, he, he's battling uh, cancer. Um, he has had prostate cancer for the past seven, eight years. Um, he's one of those old, 
strong guys. He just has refused treatment. He just believes that his time is coming, and he just said that he is not going to take the treatment. And we have had to accept that. We've had to come to peace with it's his body, it's his decision, and we've had to accept it. Okay? I can remember loving to go see my grandpa because he would always take good care of me. Um, it, it, it's amazing. Like every time I would go see him, uh, he would he would come in and he would uh, he would always always put a little something in my pocket, right? He would put a little blessing in my pocket. Then my th- th- then my grandma would tell him, you, you know that boy needs some money. He's in school. You need to take care. Of, you need to take care of him. Give him some more money, right? So remember just those sweet times, right? And, and while Papa was away, I, I pretty much had the free run of the house. My grandma would be in the back. She would be in the back watching her soaps. And, you know, if I, she would call me every now and again and bring her something. But for the most part, I could kind of have free reign over the house until he got home. When he got home, though, he had this really, really nice leather chair. You know, the, the big recliner chair with the little lever on the side. You can kind of like lean all the way back, right? Take you a good nap, watch some good TV. It was unquestioned that when he got home, he was going to get in his chair. Like, no one was going to even have a conversation about whether or not you were going to get up. It's like when you heard the garage coming up, it's like you start getting out the chair, right? <laughs> it's truth. When I think about the respect that we have for my, we have for my grandfather in his chair, it's really a reminder of the respect that we, ha- we should have for the Lord, right? That there is certain places in your life that you cannot occupy. There's a throne on your life that you cannot sit on. That only Christ is able to sit there because Christ has the right to reign and to rule in our lives. When you look at the text... We got to be reminded that Christ is not just our, our Lord. Well, he's not just our Savior, but he's also our Lord. We, I love Brother Larry. I didn't even know he was reading Colossians 1. I, was, I planned to read it this morning. Uh, Colossians 1 reminds us that Christ is before all things, and he holds all things together. He is the Lord of creation. He is the one who is able to do everything that we need. He is the head of the church. He's, he's, he's the creator of the world. He's the head of the church, and he should be the Lord of our lives. When you think about the, the reality of the lordship of Jesus, we, we, we got to accept that since Christ is Lord, he has, the, he has the right to ask us for some things, right? Like if, even if you go back to the Old Testament, you look at a guy like Moses. Uh, Moses was a, a faithful leader. And then when, when it was time for, for God to use him, what does he tell Moses? He says, I want you to take that rod and I want you to throw it down. Moses had been a shepherd, and as a shepherd, his staff was important to him. As a shepherd, he would, it was important for him to hold the staff in his hands. And God says, no, 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 no. I want you to throw it down. The staff was a picture of his identity. The staff was a picture of his reputation. The staff was a picture of his livelihood. But God says, I want you to throw it down. Moses didn't want to throw the staff down. He wanted to hold on to it. But, but God couldn't use him until he threw it down. He threw it down. 
God allowed it to turn, turn into a snake, and then God told him, he said, pick it back up. And when he picked it back up, God used him in a mighty way to lead the people out of Egypt. God used him in a mighty way uh, to do miracles. God used him in a mighty way to see the Red Sea parted. Before he threw it down, it was called the rod of Moses. But after he threw it down and picked it back up, it was called the rod of the Lord. God asked him for it because God wanted to use him at a greater level. I'm reminded of uh, the the story when Jesus uh, feeds 5,000. Jesus is preaching. He's teaching. He's doing miracles. uh, It's getting late in the day. Uh, Jesus is is preaching and teaching so much. People are drawing and people are coming. And the disciples say, Jesus, you got to stop this revival. You got to send these folks away. Jesus says, no, don't send them away. He says, sit them down. I'm going to feed them. Uh, Jesus gets a, I, I call it a a sack lunch from a little boy. He gets a couple of fish and he gets a couple pieces of bread and he's able to take what the little boy gives him. He's able to break it. He's able to bless it and he's able to give people what they could not have by themselves. It's it's a picture that when we give ourselves to the Lord, when we allow the Lord to use our life, yes, he has to break some things, but he will bless our life and he will use our life in such a greater way than we could ever imagine. So when you look at the, the text, when you look at the passage, it is, it is amazing to me that he has a powerful focus because he understood the position that the Lord deserved in his life. So there's a personal focus, there's a powerful focus, and lastly, there is a pastoral focus. The B clause of verse 1 simply says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. James writes personally or pastorally to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations. James is writing to people who are living, who have a living faith in a fallen world. I'm excited about the book because James is a powerful yet very practical book. No matter where you are in your walk with Christ, no matter where you are in your journey, I believe James has something for you. For those in our body who are going through a season of trials and testings, James has a word for you. For those who are trying to understand, well, how do I apply God's word to my life? James has a word for you. To those trying to have balance between faith and works, James has a word for you. To those of us in the congregation who struggle with uh, taming our tongue, I'm not going to point nobody out. James has a word for you. For those who are facing economic troubles or physical troubles or national troubles or church troubles, James has a word for you. Now, I got to give a warning, though, about the word that he has for you. I'm excited about the series because the book of James provides um, practical help for the people of God. But as we start, I must give a clear word of warning. When we look at the text... God's desire is to, not give, is, is to not give you his word so that your knowledge of the Bible can increase, right? Like God is not interested in like opening up your brain and dumping biblical knowledge into it. But God gives us this book because he is specifically committed to our transformation. I'll close with this. Chris, you come on back up. Every January, it is inevitable that a gem, well, that gems 
uh, across the country have a spike in their membership. Jay, can I get an amen? (laughs) People usually have a New Year's resolution and they want to um, they want to get their body right. You know, usually thinking about um, you know thinking about the beach or thinking about you know summer, so they want to use you know what they got to you know get a little better, right? Usually, when you join a gym, you have a tour. And they'll show you the free weights, they'll show you the cardio machines, they'll show you the locker rooms, and they'll show you all this before you sign up because they really want you to be sold on it. Just so we're on the same page, the book of James is not like taking a biblical tour. The author of the book is not concerned about showing you around the first century or impressing you with spiritual equipment. The book of James is a book that invites us to put some weight on the bar. James is saying it's time to do more than admire the Christian faith, but it's time to live out our faith. Now, here's the thing about living out our faith. Same thing with with working out. When you work out and you put some weight on the bar, it's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's not easy lifting weights. It's not easy to do that hard work. But if you continue to lift the weights, it'll transform your body. And if we continue to dig into the scriptures, continue to study God's word, if we continue to pray, we will never be perfect this out of heaven. But we will be transformed. So that's where we're going over the next couple months as we look at the book of James. Here, here are my three points of application. I'll be done this morning. First of all, we should never give up on people. There should never be a time in our life where there's a person in our life where we have concluded that is outside of God's reach. We need to not just share the gospel, but we need to pray that the Lord would prepare people's hearts for the gospel, right? It's easy for me to kind of do my little bridge diagram or to do my little thing I usually do and assume that if I'm persuasive enough, that God's going to change them, but that's not how I should look at it. I need to beg and plead with God to save people. Secondly, we should trust God in every area of our lives. Since Christ is the the Lord of my life, there should not be an area of my life where I cannot trust God. Now, that's hard. It's really tough. But if you look at God's track record of faithfulness, If you look how God always gives us more than we deserve, how the Lord looks past our sins, how the Lord is slow and compassionate and steadfast, it should encourage us to trust him. And then thirdly, we should expect to be transformed. We should expect to grow. We should expect to become more like Christ. I want the prayer team to come up. I'm going to pray for us. Chris is going to sing. Give three simple invitations this morning. Number one, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, if you never got to a place in your life where you have surrendered to the Lord Jesus, I want to, I want to encourage you that today is a great day to do that. We have folks who are going to be standing up front who would love to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Christ. But also, We have some folks who will be up front who who can just pray with you. If you have a concern or a need, if you have a struggle 
in your life and you want somebody to just pray with you, you have something that's going on in your life, you say, hey, T, I, I got a doctor's appointment go- coming up. Or, hey, I haven't really just been feeling it myself. Hey, I don't have a desire to get in God's word. Hey, I'm struggling in a different area. These folks would love to pray with you. And also, too, you may have a praise report. And maybe you want to come up front and you want to pray a prayer of celebration. We want you to know that the altar is open. And we would love for you to respond however the Lord leads. We pray for us.